Welcome to Have You Seen This, the podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten cinema. All discussions will be spoiler-heavy. You have been warned. Have you seen this? In 1987, a Faustian bargain was struck with Mickey Rourke as the center of it. It was a psychological horror film that I think has been criminally overlooked. It's called Angel Heart. Welcome to Have You Seen This? I'm Jennifer Albright. And I'm Tim Heidrich. And we're talking about Angel Heart. Um, 1987, directed by Alan Parker, starring Mickey Rourke and Lisa Bonet. Yeah. Uh, gee, where do you want to start with that? Because, I mean, we have... like Alan Parker I like because I like Pink Floyd's The Wall. And you yes. can kind of see some similar, I don't know, stylistic choices in this. Also a nice bit of stunt casting with Robert De Niro playing the actual devil. Yeah, in a, in a, in a fun way that... Um, that is befitting the entire movie and that it's one of those things that is kind of it's staring you in the face but never acknowledged because from the moment that you first see Robert De Niro you're like something is seriously up with this character this is not a normal person I mean from like just his appearance and demeanor and his um long pointed fingernails like every part of him oh from even before you see him when you're given his name Louis Cypher I get it yeah, you're like, the movie is telling you, oh, by the way, this guy's the devil. But even the movie acknowledges as such, it's like, oh, if I had, you know, Hoven clothes and a pointed tail, like, would that convince you? And it's one of those things that's just, it it really rides that line in a way that I find dramatically interesting. Um, how, if you were going to give the TV Guide summary of this film, what would it be? Uh, it would be um, 1950s private investigator tracks down the the missing 40s crooner johnny favorite at the behest of a demonic client that's good i like it i'd watch that movie yeah oh heck yeah i'd (laughs) i'd give it three and a half stars (laughs) yeah and uh apparently this movie didn't really hit on first release in 1987 i think on an 18 million dollar budget it made 17 Again, which I find criminal because I I forget why we had initially wanted to watch this movie, but having seen it, I feel you know so much the richer for for experiencing it. Which again, I know this is a spoiler heavy podcast, but I hate to give anything away because it's like just watch the movie and enjoy it for what it is. Well, we got the spoiler warning up front. It's like I know. people like turn this off right now. Fucking watch Angel Heart. Yeah, and then come back and listen to the rest of it. Right, <laughs> you will be rewarded. Yeah, yeah, like um, I, the reason the the way I got introduced to this movie was um, a friend of mine put on the sex scene between which, Lisa Bonet and Mickey Rourke, which, which is, is a story unto itself. Fucking insane, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you want to talk about the the kind of movie that it shares company with, would be like um. Roman Polanski's Ninth Gate or geez even um, Devil's Advocate which I'm actually a fan of even with Pacino chewing the scenery do you think this maybe influenced those movies a little bit um possibly Jacob's Ladder is another one I, yeah, I think which... that's that's more of a contemporary and I think that's also a, a forgotten classic as well yeah and at the time um, the big thing was like horror um, in horror was slasher franchises yeah, which is like, and to my mind, is perfectly valid form of entertainment as well. 
you know um like i like i like a good slasher movie yeah but well, this what this one might have been like something a little different from what people were expecting out of a horror movie or maybe they didn't know it was a horror movie because it, it starts yeah, as it's, a detective it's, story yeah it's very yeah and that's what i think is so great is because it has that turn mm-hmm. um because yeah like you say it is a detective story it's it's a drama and it has occult elements in it but again like it starts as a grounded film and it continues that way up until the climax yeah and you kind of get hints right off the bat but it's um it's as subtle as blood on a wall can be because (laughs) one of the first horror related things that you see is when um uh harry angel mickey rourke's character the detective is going to meet his client for the first time he arrives at this black church in Harlem, and as he's going upstairs, he sees a woman scrubbing blood off a wall, and he's told that one of the parishioners blew his brains out there. Yeah, and it's mm-hmm. kind of... Um, you want to make an omelet, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of one of the first, um, you know, indicators, along with the opening, you know, with the, the dog and the cat and the creepy street, and there's a fucking dead body right there. Yeah, there's a corpse. Yeah, like, it, you're kind of put off kilter like right from the beginning but then you're like oh okay like it's a detective story and then things just start to get weird yeah i mean that's that's the thing that i find interesting about it is that it does have a lot of the mundane trappings of a just a a real world story which is what makes the the subtle fantastical elements that do appear in it later so much more impactful it's because it doesn't kind of uh it doesn't wear its supernaturalness on its sleeve i guess which Mm -hmm. is a, a very odd turn of phrase um, but it's it, supernatural qualities. Yes, yeah. So it it doesn't um it doesn't exist in a world where those things are taken as red. It, it exists in a world where it's like yeah, voodoo and like weird Catholicism and whatnot. But like those are just sort of scenery to it. And then it's and that's you know the that creates the world that the story exists in. We are getting off track in that we're talking about all these um unsettling elements that are in that. But again, like the culmination of that being that that sex scene, which is, is which is very arresting, mm-hmm. and it certainly was to the ratings board who gave the movie an X rating you know, until uh, you know the director excised a few seconds of was it pelvic thrusting well, to get them an R rating. Well, because it isn't just that they're fucking; it's that all of a sudden like blood starts dripping down on them from the ceiling. Yeah, and, and then like a bunch of demonic shit just starts happening. It's really like it does give one pause to see because it's like holy shit what the fuck is happening yeah and it, it really it's it's like i said in the way that the world that exists for angel heart is you know very mundane until it takes this turn and you're like hang on yeah like wait a second because and you can imagine that that uh fits very much for the central character because he's like i i as as he repeats i know who i am like he he understands his world and he knows his world to be a a particular way but then eventually like things happen in such that they kind of start to go a little askew and things go off the rails and then you know the bottom falls out for him so to speak i get where you're going with yes that. and he is <laughs> plunged into another sort of world <laughs> Again, and this is the sort of thing that like is is what's so satisfying about you know watching the movie is that it seems like these are abstract threats until they become you know real ones, and I think that that's that's when things get really interesting for me. So that's kind of a little overview of what we're dealing with here, which is like a psychological horror detective story. 
So maybe that's why it didn't quite come across to audiences at the time. It was produced by Carolco Pictures. Carolco is very interesting because they produced some of the biggest hits of the 80s and early 90s. I mean, like, we're talking first three Rambo movies, uh, Terminator 2, uh, Total Recall, Basic Instinct. And this was an independent outfit. They're kind of like the um, swan song of the sort of auteur legacy of, like, the mid-70s, I want to say. Like, that's, that's that finally coming to an end. Because they did have a lot of... Do you mean, of, like, in the vein of, like, Coppola's zoetrope? Yeah, in, in, in the yeah, way cause... that you could have a lot more interesting, daring, provocative movies. That's true. And um, also being, like, an independent outfit that was able to sink that much money yeah into the uh, problem is you know you, you double down enough times and you press your luck and eventually well, yeah because you end well, up with cutthroat island <laughs> and again like if yeah I'm... um they did they did cutthroat island and showgirls and then carol co was no more um which is do... a tragedy unto itself yeah they do they do exist i mean they were they were bought out and brought back in 2015 and i think they're they made like um basic instinct 2 they made a sequel to Basic Instinct? Yeah, Carol Co. made Basic Instinct 2. You know, oh, okay. now they're back, baby, and they're better than ever, but oh. no matter. <laughs> Sorry, Basic Instinct 2, you say? <laughs> um, just um, as an aside, like, this is this just, this story just demonstrates, like, how much I love IMDb trivia. Okay. Yeah, you know, because, like, you know, anybody can submit, like, IMDb trivia, and I think they just verify that it's factual. Okay. But then they don't, they don't do much else with it. Because uh, I found this story in the trivia for Angel Heart. When producer Alan Marshall first approached Robert De Niro by phone about taking a part in the film, De Niro asked him, Are you the guy who produced Birdie? When Marshall replied that he was, De Niro promptly hung up. There is no explanation for that story. Like, to this day, I still don't know why De Niro yeah, found Birdie to be board. such anathema. Maybe he was excited and he was like, this is the guy who did Birdie. I got to get on a plane. (laughs) I can't pass with this opportunity. Although whether or not that's (coughs) apocryphal, if you want to go, if you want to download the, um, uh, the like iTunes version of uh, Angel Heart, or if you are able to track down a DVD, I mean, in the interview with Alan Parker, he talks about just how, how tricky it was to, to get De Niro on board for for a guy who ultimately worked like five days on set, it, you know he was just you know notorious to, to to try to track down. Even when like he finally agreed to the part, he didn't agree. He's like, I am inclined to to do your this role. And just like okay, thanks. I guess I guess you can say that kind of shit if you're De Niro. I suppose, and and yeah, I mean that's kind of why the stunt casting works because I mean he's in what like three or four scenes. Yeah, and um. Parker mentioned that he uh, was, I don't know if it was that he was a little afraid of him or just kind of like put off, but he didn't really direct De Niro Mm -hmm. so much. He just kind of let him do his own thing, which, you know, yielded great results. And, you know, De Niro did a lot of his own, um, like he found his own props. The two of them spent a lot of time debating the exact length of his fingernails yeah. This is the second movie we've done where fingernails play a major part. Oh yeah, that's right. In the 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 set dressing. Who would have thought that fingernails would be such a touchstone for a cult whatever? Oh hey, and fingernails are a thing in Showgirls too. 
Oh yeah, that's right. Wow. Wow. We could do a whole episode about like fingernails in cinema. You can do my nails, darling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, you have De Niro in a small but memorable role. Well, it's De Niro getting to be De Niro because yeah. you know he's kind of like, yeah, I, I bring my own ensemble with me. <laughs> like you don't need to direct him because he's like, look, I got this. I'm De Niro. Pretty much. Yeah. So, you know, you just kind of let him have his head and, and go. Right. So in addition to De Niro, we have another gifted actor with a really interesting life story, uh, Mickey Rourke as Harry Angel. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just me, but it's hard to take Mickey Rourke seriously. He seems like kind of, I don't know if it's kind of like Do you that. mean like as a person or? Yeah. I don't know if it's like that kind of like, uh, that kind of lemon face jersey kind of yeah <laughs> like demeanor that he like carries himself and hey, like the institute of health yeah yeah it's that kind of thing you're just like who oh, is this mook but i think that that is well doing him a disservice as an actor because if, if you want to go back to his history i mean he again and this is you know cribbing the the commentary for the dvd but i mean he you know was in the actor's studio lee strasberg which apparently was no small thing. It, it's it's him. Um, He's very method. Yeah, it, 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 it <laughs> like his class was like him, Harvey Keitel, um, uh, was it Al Pacino and Christopher Walken, and it's like that's that's pretty good company for an actor to be in. Damn. Yeah. Just to sit in on one of those classes, man. Yeah, I know. So it's it's <laughs> not that he doesn't have the acting chops, and yeah, I mean he did go very method, and you can see it in his performance. So the unfortunate thing is that, you know, he kind of dropped off the scene for what, like 20 years? Well, I can give the kind of capsule bio of Mickey Rourke. Um, he started as a boxer, um, took up acting when he was injured, acted for a while and became very, very hot yeah. um, because he, you know, he did fucking uh, nine and a half weeks, mm -hmm. which was a huge hit. He did... Rumblefish? Yeah, which he, he's actually done a lot of relative flops. A good movie can still be a flop. Well, yeah, you know, he I mean, look cause, at Hudson Hawk. Because that's the because that's the other thing about Mickey Rourke is that you can't say that he hasn't done like interesting work. But you know, he he became like very hot, um, popular, did challenging parts. You know, like he did. Um, I mean, look at him in this movie and then compare it to him in fucking Barfly. Yeah. You know, like that's yeah. that's like a pretty that's pretty pretty wide spectrum. And yeah, I mean, um, Charles Bukowski versus anything, I think, is a pretty wide <laughs> spectrum. Yeah. And um, then I think about early 90s, um, he did he did like Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, which is a movie that he said he regretted doing. That seems normal. That's a normal <laughs> reaction. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, he quit acting to go back to boxing. And um, as he once put it, like one fight turned into 11. The tricky thing about that is boxing and acting are kind of at odds with each other. What with getting your face smashed in <laughs> night after night. Yeah, because um, I always have, I always feel the same sense of shock uh, coming back to Angel Heart after I haven't watched it in a while. Because um, you know the main picture that we all have in our head of Mickey Rourke is like the Mickey Rourke of the wrestler. Yeah. You know, kind of this. Or of Iron Man. Yeah, this sort of like weird rubbery faced Hulk. And you see him as Harry Angel, and you're like, he's beautiful. Once upon a time. You know, and you understand, like, why people responded to him, and, like, he was he was huge in France. 
um, because they liked his bad boy appeal. Yeah, and you know he he has that in Spades. Like he has, and because there are actors who have charm but no charisma, and he had both. Yeah, he's kind of like not quite Rat Pack, not quite Brat Pack. It's kind of right oh, that's in the good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because, um, and you know, coincidentally, uh, the precursor to Rumblefish is what kicked off the, the Brat Pack era. Oh, well, um, there you have outsiders. it. That'll do it. Yeah. Um, T-I-L. So, yeah, he retired from acting, went back to boxing, got his face mashed into a pulp. It's, um, it's a shame when your boxing career doesn't work out and you have to instead fall back on your other job of being an A-list Hollywood actor. Yeah, like when you have to like go back to working with Terrence Malick? Gross. Ah, uh, poor guy. <laughs> yeah, and then um, he went back to acting in the late 90s and um, kind of, that kind of leaves us with the Mickey Rourke of today, like doing strange, random parts. Yeah, and again, that's it's it really does a disservice to his history in that he comes across as just kind of this clownish character. I mean, like, it's him interesting. with, like, his little, like, rescue chihuahuas, and you're guy, just like... The guy loves his wawas. Yeah. It's just like, who is this weirdo? But, I mean, again, <laughs> from the inside looking out, it's like, well, these are the things that I wanted to do when I'm doing them as thoroughly as I can. It's like, well, it's kind of what everyone wants, I guess. Yeah. So you can't and, really throw stones. Yeah, and then, um, you know, knowing we have, and we haven't even touched on like, uh, you know, like the mess of his personal life, and you know, the fact that he was um, one of the things that torpedoed his career was that he was like difficult to work with. Yeah, that's never good. And if you listen to Alan Parker talking about working with him on Angel Heart, like you can tell that he regards the experience as positive, but it's almost like you know he's talking about, you know, like if it's a dog that you don't know if it's going to bite. Because I don't think that... I, I think he mentioned... I think that Alan Parker mentioned, like, in the scenes with De Niro and O'Rourke together, he, like, in the first scene they're together, like, they ended up just improvising, like, a ton. And Parker said he shot, like, magazine after magazine of film and didn't use any of it. But I almost kind of feel like, you know, if I were in Alan Parker's position, I'd be like, am I really going to step in and be like, hey, come on, guys, like, stick to the script? yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a, an embarrassment of riches, sort of. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to be a fly on the wall and see, you know, what they're coming up with. Although, you know, it's possible that, you know, it's just the two of them working out the scene while they're rolling. Yeah. And, and you know, again, one of the funny anecdotes that Mickey Rourke had about working on, uh, what is Steve Buscemi picture where he's playing a, a transvestite. Like, and, you know, he, he just pretty much came to set in character. Because he's like, yeah, well, I don't want to waste anyone's time. And that might have been kind of a flip side to him and De Niro kind of working out the scenes between, you know, their two characters, uh, albeit while the cameras are rolling yeah. on, on Angel Heart. And I can see how that would be a thing that if you're a director or a producer or a financier, you're like, can we stop wasting film, please? <laughs> can we stop wasting time of 17 people? While you two try to work this out. Yeah, and it's interesting about how, like, you know, you mentioned earlier, like, you know, not necessarily responding positively to Mickey Rourke as a person, you know, when you see him interviewed. But then as you hear him talk, and I felt this as I was watching interviews with him, it's obviously he takes his craft really seriously. Yeah. You know, the guy's like, the guy's like, obviously, like, strange as hell like i'm sure i'm sure he was a fucking nightmare to work with like there's oh, yeah. no doubt but but it's one of those things where it's like well you know but when he's on yeah and again <laughs> that then maybe that might just be kind of i don't know if that's genuine or cultivated in the same way that it, he's kind of 
he seemed like you know the second coming of Marlon Brando, who mm-hmm. is himself kind of on that between genius and madness. And a fucking nightmare to work with. Yeah, and a fucking nightmare to work with. I mean, again, like, if you, if all you knew of Marlon Brando was the island of Dr. Moreau, like, you would come away with the same impression of him as you would Mickey Rourke if you only knew him from the wrestler or from the Iron Man sequel. Yeah, and there's also, like, similarity where it's, um, you know, you see the latter period mm-hmm. actor and you're like, Jesus Christ. And then, but if you revisit their earlier work... You you're know, you're like, like, it's like some kind of like man god yeah. incarnate. Yeah. Like, holy shit, like f- fucking, fucking beautiful. <laughs> yeah, you have to wonder what deal with the devil did he make for his fame? Hmm? <gasps> somewhere there's, so you're saying that somewhere there's like a really beautiful portrait of Mickey Rourke? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> yeah, so it's called Nine and a Half Weeks. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's Mickey Rourke. Uh, he does fine work in this picture. Yeah. Um, the other actor that we have to talk about is, uh, the female lead, uh, Lisa Bonet, and, uh... And this ties it all back to that violent sex scene. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I forgot to mention about Mickey Rourke is that when the opportunity came up for him to do Angel Heart, he took it because he, in, he was about to lose his house, so... It ended up being fortuitous. Yeah, well, you can tell that an actor wants to work when they're going to be out on the street if they don't. Well, yeah, because, like, my impression is that, um, you know, he's probably spending a lot of time, like, fucking up and fucking around. It's like, oh, wait, shit. Yeah. I better nope. I better take this acting thing seriously for a little while. Gotta get my head straight. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we are, we are much richer for it. But anyway. Um, <laughs> it's good he, he took a role out of financial necessity. Capitalism, bro. Yeah, I guess. Huh. We should talk about the female lead, Lisa Bonet. Yeah, so bring it, bringing that violent sex scene back around. <laughs> really, the only thing that I remember when Angel Heart came out when I was like, you know, when I was in grade school, was Bill Cosby chastising Lisa Bonet for this role because she had a very squeaky clean image. I mean, you know, she was one of the Huxtable kids. Yeah, and um, I guess, uh, do we have any young listeners? Like, do I do I fucking have to explain the Cosby Show? Oh man, for people, because it like to be fair, that was thirty fucking years ago. <laughs> oh well, uh, you explain it while I cry into my pillow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Lisa Bonet was played the second daughter daughter on the Cosby Show, which um, which was. Um, the Cos- well, the Cosby was, Show was a, a... It was a de- watershed in TV entertainment because it presented a well-to-do, well-adjusted black family. Yeah, it was a departure for, for black roles in primetime TV because, like, you know, no one was, like, a a waitress or a maid or, like, owned a junk shop. Like, the, the, the heads of the household were a doctor and a lawyer, like, that lived in Manhattan and had a, a bunch of, you know, precocious children. So, squeaky clean. Um, this was, uh, again, uh, 30 years before the fall of Bill Cosby. Yeah, Bill Cosby isn't mm. really uh, giving anyone any... Uh, uh, any shit for yeah. their life choices right, <laughs> right. now. Um, yeah. And um, at the time, uh, Lisa Bonet... high ground. <laughs> Lisa Bonet was going into this Cosby show spinoff, A Different World, mm-hmm. um, which followed... Uh, Again, her... that same, you know, squeaky clean image. Yeah, like, which what? followed her character, call it Denise I don't Huxtable? Know. Someone IMDb that. <laughs> uh, 
Um, it followed her character at college, mm-hmm. and then uh, she, the, she had the opportunity to do Angel Heart, and because I, she is an actor, yeah, and she should be able to do whatever to the do fuck she wants for her roles. career. Yeah, yeah, and um, as we said, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this was a movie that came perilously close to an X rating. Yeah, you know, and she is, uh, and um, Alan Parker mentioned in interviews that you know he was concerned about like you know because she was so young she was 20 at the time making her feel comfortable and she was almost more comfortable than he and mickey rourke were well, he, as he Parker's put it she english was, so he's never comfortable yeah and like you know as he put it she was uninhibited good and it shows you know she was gonna do what was right for her career but you know she did want to go to her tv dad and you know get his blessing if possible right uh i found <laughs> i found this quote from an Ebony Magazine article from the time. Cosby said he did indeed give Lisa his approval to do Angel Heart, but he was quick to add that he didn't go see it because, in his words, that film doesn't offer my appetite anything. All right, well, people are allowed their opinions, I suppose. Which I assume he means because uh, the woman was conscious during the sex scene. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) And, you know, again, like anything having to do with Cosby in the 80s is now like hilarious in a fucked up way yeah it's kind of tainted and like ironic now <laughs> i i think of the the eddie murphy bit of like what is what happened when like bill cosby called up lisa bonet i would like to talk to you <laughs> about some of the roles that you'd pick in your career <laughs> have a coconut smile and shut the fuck up yeah 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 and she is very memorable in the role i mean she um is really beautiful yeah and really natural she's a she's a she's a pyt as they would say at the time <laughs> sorry there's a there's a uh, a a black um musical artist called michael jackson who was popular <laughs> at the time speaking of uh reputations that have since been tainted yeah um so well, what stood out to you about the film i mean what may what to you makes it memorable again getting back to the very first thing that I said about it, about it being a psychological horror film that takes place in like an otherwise mundane world and like the real world as, as you and I would know it. Um, because that's the way that, um, that Harry Angel approaches it where it's like, Oh, you know, you get a client who like, he, who seems to act like the devil. Your first reaction isn't to go, Oh geez, I'm talking to the real literal devil, you know? Okay. This guy is a, weirdo who likes to you know dress interestingly and has you know some peculiar grooming habits and have you seen the way the guy eats eggs that's <laughs> that's another thing and that's a great scene of the two of them like you know discussing you know uh, having a discussion over eggs because you know there not only is not only is you know robert de niro again doing like some great you know physical work like you know, with like the taking, you know, peeling the egg, the the hard boiled egg, and like peeling the shell and all the other stuff. Then again, this is that movie sort of making these like sly, albeit on the nose references to to you know what they're talking around, which is you know De Niro's character saying, oh, you know, in some cultures the egg represents the soul. Blah blah blah. Keeps peeling the egg, salts the egg. And then there's a close above him eating the egg. So it's like, oh, by the way, I devour souls. <laughs> and that's that's one of the the really rewarding things that I you know that I like about this movie is that it 
it has a lot of those, those little moments that touch on a thing without really giving it away until the very end. It's it's, it's that same sort of um, is it or isn't it, which again, like I'm I'm having a tough time thinking about what movies best embody this, but other ones like um, the Robert Downey in um, those forgotten Sherlock Holmes movies, the ones that were like a huge deal, and then he became Iron Man and everyone forgot about him. Yeah. Weird how Iron Man seems to be at the, the center of all this. I know. It's, uh, well, Marvel is basically eating the world at this point. Yeah. Along with Disney. Um, but, but and now yeah. they're together. Yeah, finally. But yeah, like, and you know, it's funny because that Sherlock Holmes movie is like the only Guy Ritchie film that I really liked. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, it was a well-made film. And the thing that I liked about it um, structure-wise is that it you know, there's this kind of occult figure that through... Uh, through evidence, you're like, oh, okay, this is starting to look more and more like magic. And then there's a point where you're like, huh, I guess he is magic. And then uh, then eventually Sherlock Holmes is like, well, actually, it was this, 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 and this. And you're like, oh, it wasn't real. I got suckered. Oh, yeah, because I remember because we both liked that movie because when we watched it, we are like, holy shit, that was like, that was literally like an atheist film. Yeah, it convinces you the the whole way with all this, you know, supposed evidence of you saying, okay, yeah, magic is real. And then at the end, it's like, no, it fucking is. You're yeah. kidding me. But yeah, like, um, you know, Angel Heart's a little different in that it's like, you know, like, no, it really is the fucking devil. Yeah, and again, it's one of those things where you're like, oh, okay, yeah, it's this this weirdo, and you've you've got you set me up for these string of murders because everyone that Harry Angel then meets winds up dead yeah. mysteriously, and at the end he's like, sometimes oh. within seconds of uh, him taking his leave. Yeah, <laughs> suspiciously even, um, the unreliable narrator, which is also a, a cool trope, and. And yeah, like if you're seeing it from Harry Angel's point of view, you're like, no, this weirdo's trying to set me up for all these murders. He wants these people bumped off for whatever, and then he's all just going to pin it on me, which is the way the book ends. And the movie is so much better for going the other direction because it's, um, you know, Lewis Cipher uh, trying to convince you know Harry Angel to say, you know, to, to be like, no, you're actually... Uh, in service to me you signed a contract but because you know his he he tried to weasel out of the contract he tried he, like he was originally this uh johnny favorite crooner who got amnesia and was put in a mental hospital to disappear and then eventually the devil tracked him down and the devil's you know saying you're this guy you know your soul belongs to me and 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 again it's in this you know climactic um you know very very intense scene where you know Harry refuses to to believe all this, and as would any sane person, it's like I know who I am. Like I, you know, in the in the same way that any of us any of us would, the same way that, you know, Rachel would go to Decker and be like, "These are my childhood photos. This is my mom. I know who I am." Same thing with uh, same thing with Harry Angel, and he's you know I know who I am, and it and it cuts back to, you know, Robert De Niro in close up with these demonic yellow eyes ah! and he's like no your soul belongs to me and that's that <laughs> that's that point where you're like again where the bottom falls out and you're just like oh shit this is real yeah that's the moment where you shit your pants yeah and that is such a satisfying cinematic moment because you have just you only have like these kind of vague hints about like I don't know what all this adds up to I don't know what this means I'm not sure what's going on in the same way that He's piecing together this puzzle. The audience is following along with them. You're getting a lot of, through the course of the film, you're getting a lot of these kind of low-key, uh, like high-contrast 
shots uh, done out of context of like of like a chair in an empty room and like the door to an elevator opening and things like that where you're just like what is this all about like there's a point of view shot of Times Square and you're like I don't know what this means and it's only until you know Robert De Niro slash the devil shows up and is there to explain it to you and be like well this is what all this means this is this is the uh, truth that you've been trying to get at and again that's what makes it such an interesting tragic character is because the further that he gets into the story the more he becomes mired in it it's one of those things that like he could leave he could disappear he could not explain it he could you know run off and and go do something else but the closer that he gets to solving the case the more he he becomes convicted you know of 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 you know the these these crimes and so finally when it comes around you know to the end and you know you realize like oh you've you finally found out who you are and you found out that you don't like who that person is and i think that that's emotionally at the you know the crux of this film in that it isn't just a story about a bargain with the devil and it isn't just a a detective story it's that idea that you can come to know yourself and to understand yourself better and go holy shit i'm such a piece of shit so that's something that's that's an interesting takeaway that that I can come like just to find out that your history and your actions are so utterly irredeemable that in in the same way that you know, Harry Angel's character by the end of the end of the movie they're like yeah you're gonna burn for this and he's like yeah in hell <laughs> like yeah. he he knows what an awful person he is even if he doesn't um, he doesn't realize it or he doesn't acknowledge it and I think that that is like. That is very satisfying from a, a psychological horror perspective because it isn't just, you know, like we, we mentioned earlier, it isn't just a slasher fic. It isn't just a monster movie. It's the idea that the, um, like the true horror and the true evil resides within the self. Like, I can't think of anything more horrifying than that, which is what makes the, the movie such an awesome, you know, uh, experience for me. And if if I were to further carry on, <laughs> I would say that um, not only is it great because uh, because you know the subject matter and the way it's delivered, I particularly enjoy the structure because if you go through the whole movie, I mean it's it's him getting kind of further down this path of you know finding out that he is you know the evil that he's been tracking this whole time, but at the end there's that you know realization or it's it's basically the devil saying you know you are this this irredeemable evil bastard that i that i signed a contract with and then he finds out that again in the tradition of unsubtle names of this movie uh, lisa bonu's character's name is epiphany <laughs> and he you know he has that violent sex scene with epiphany um only to return to her place and find her murdered to also realize that if he's Johnny Favorite and she's the daughter of Johnny Favorite, yeah, then he Uh-oh. just yeah, it's like mm, that's awkward. Yeah. Um. So he had he had uh, had sex with and murdered his own daughter, and yeah, and that's when the the two other sort of regional Southern cops that show up, who are who are great minor characters, yeah. by the way, in the way that they have like. You know, they're kind of casual southern racism like yeah. it's it's interesting character work and, and makes them you know more more rounded rather than just stock you know local cops so that that's when they find him and they're like yeah you know you're gonna burn for this and he's like yeah in hell and it cuts to black and then credits and you're like okay that's the end of the movie and then it cuts to you know 
Harry in this dimly lit, you know, old-fashioned elevator, you know, headed mm. down. Mm, uh-oh. Wonder More, where he's going. Yeah. After and, he said he was going to burn in hell. <laughs> yeah. And again, like, you know, more more credits, more of him in the elevator, and it's back and forth. And the thing that I find, I guess, like, interesting and, 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 and kind of disturbing is that if you take what happens in between credits as the, like, liminal space of of the lives of those characters like Harry Angel doesn't exist until you know he's introduced on screen and his life ends at the end of the film and it's bookended by credits the credits existing sort of outside that that reality but that he as a character continues past the end of the film is kind of like his character existing in the afterlife it's an interesting structural choice to not end the film with the credits, as you were saying. Like, to have the story continue through the credits and then have um, kind of the uh, the culmination of his afterlife, like, right at the end of the credits. Yeah. It... Because then it ends with uh, the whispering yeah, because those two names. Yeah, and again, that's that's just so much more disturbing. Is like you're you're stuck watching these credits till the end, and it only finally by the end of the credits does the elevator reach the bottom of you know the elevator shaft. It it reaches you know the bottom floor, its final destination, and that's it's it it's so creepy because it's it kind of feels like he's just beyond all life at that point. Like no one else is here to help you because you know, kind of like, you know, the gate slammed down at the end of the film when it ended and when the credits started rolling, it's just him alone. There's just this, this strange kind of profound sense of isolation in it. And that like, he's outside of the movie. Yeah. And that's, that's what I just find so, um, I don't know, just so, so compelling about, about the ending and its structure. Yeah, because I remember the first time we watched it, we were pretty much blown away by it. We were like, whoa. Yeah, it's, again, like, it's, it's a, you know, you talk about, you know, speaking of, you know, Marvel and Disney and, like, post-credit sequences, like, that's that's the post-credit sequence that you want. Yeah. Because it's, uh, it its format is, you know, sort of tied into the story itself and it's so uh, does this mean that bloopers also take place in the afterlife man you just blew my mind <laughs> <laughs> we high as fuck so if, if anything <laughs> like that is the that's the the big takeaway from angel heart not not only just like you know, it was lisa bonet in a daring role that you know contrasts her squeaky clean cosby show image it's Mickey Rourke more or less at the height of his um, you know, at the height of his fame before disappearing into boxing for for twenty years. It's a great bit of stunt casting with Robert De Niro. Mm-hmm. It's also uh, a nice little role for uh, Charlotte Rampling. Oh yeah, as uh, Margaret Cruzmark, the the Is psychic was... and seer, yeah, the elegant uh, psychic and seer. Yeah, one of those white voodoo tourists. Um, Oh, and um, that's an interesting tidbit. 
which I got from Alan Parker's director commentary, yeah. which I would really love to have this verified. Okay. Because I don't see how they could have done this. Because, um, you know, she ends up murdered with her heart cut out. Mm-hmm. And there's the... <laughs> I guess the money shot of that scene is when he finds the heart and it just kind of spills out. And you're like, oh my God, it's a fucking human yeah. heart. So, well, according to Alan Parker, he's like, oh, that, that's, an, that's a real heart provided to us by a physician at a local teaching hospital. <laughs> and then that's the end of that anecdote. You go to the next scene, you're like, wait a minute, who is handing out body parts? <laughs> like, oh, like, we're doing a movie where, like, somebody fucking gets killed and we need a heart. Like, oh, hey, use this one. Hey, you want a toe? I can get you a toe. <laughs> <laughs> one with nail polish, even. <laughs> if, if anybody knows if they actually used human body parts on Angel Heart, please contact the show. You can DM us at uh, Pasolini is dead on Twitter. <laughs> He's dead and his heart is cut out, and <laughs> it's making a cameo in Angel Heart. And again, like, there's so much... Like, even the title itself is thematically consistent because, you know, you've got Harry Angel, Angel Heart, the heart getting cut out of the poor servicemen that they murdered in their satanic ritual yeah. to escape the devil. It's like, it, it all it, it all fits so nicely together. And, it, and then again, like, I can't emphasize how um, kind of well done this movie is in mood and structure. Like, number one, because it's a period film that actually feels lived in. I think I might have mentioned on the show before, my problem with a lot of period films is that um, they feel somehow sanitized or unreal. Okay. Or like, you know, oh, this is a set and we're wearing period costume. Yeah, everything's like a little too clean. Yeah. um, yeah, This is a movie which really feels lived in. Yeah. Um, A lot of care was taken in the production design, the prop choice, etc. Um, so it's, it's it like feels this... it feels very real and organic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the way the mood is created and sustained, mm-hmm. you know, really adds to the joy of watching it. Yeah, you and... know, because you know it starts off creepy and then it gets just creepier and creepier and creepier. Yeah, as you go on, and you know, where you found yourself at the beginning watching a kind of standard detective story with some strange trappings that make you feel a little unsettled. By the end, you feel like you've seen kind of some kind of like Grand Guignol horror. Yeah. And you're, when you realize the implications of uh, Johnny Favorite's actions, mm-hmm. like, you're just completely shook. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, and again, like, speaking of atmosphere, like, they have some like you know authentic blues people in it the music cues are great they're great because they underscore the content of the scene well in that when he's he's trying to get information from uh what's it toot sweet one of mm-hmm. the guitar guys who knew johnny favorite and then there's like you know this this woman singing her song and it's like you got you know the, the right key but you know you're knocking on the wrong door and it's <laughs> like yeah you're looking in the wrong places you better just cut your losses and get out of here and that's good because it's not like it's not like a fucking obvious song that like everyone's heard of right and yeah it's, it's like a nice little counterpoint to the scene it isn't like in your face yeah it's like someone put some thought into this which is which i always appreciate in the movies that I see. Yeah, and I um I feel like that's true of the movie in general where um and again this is something that Alan Parker talked about in the commentary where um he said he um took some liberties with the novel where I th- which I think was set entirely in New York but um he moved 
much of the setting to New Orleans. And when they shot there, he said that he didn't want to do, like, the really obvious touristy, like, French Quarter kind of thing. Yeah. So he found an area which was emblematic of New Orleans, but not, like, something that you think of, like, you know, from, like, a fucking, like, travel ad. Yeah, and that's kind of the problem. Well, that is a thing that I'm conscious of in terms of whether it's, yeah, you know, whether it's you know scene, um, like scene selection, or whether it's writing, or or whether it's character, and that like it is so easy to fall on and fall back onto these obvious tropes without examining where they came from. And at that point, it's it's not, it, it's not honest, and it isn't you know it, it isn't a an artist truthful um, conveyance of of an idea. They're just falling back on it. it's like, well, this is what New Orleans is like, and it's like no go there and you tell me what new orleans is you tell me what it's like rather than going like oh you know they're gonna have like a a brass jazz band on someone's funeral you know going down you know the french quarter and there's gonna be all those like you know goofy shaped uh you know gravestones and there's a lot of (laughs) wrought iron work and mardi gras and Mm -hmm. whatever and it's like no that's like that's tv's idea of new orleans what is your version what what if you went there would you see i think that was how um alan parker approached the the writing of the script he said he actually spent a lot of time just hanging out there you know kind of in bars and restaurants and And soaking up the atmosphere and again it's like oh I, i appreciate that you put some fucking work into your project yeah that's that's very kind of you yeah and um and the thing to keep in mind is a lot of times, um, you know, say watching a movie from 30 or 40 or 50 or more years ago, mm-hmm. something which might seem completely cliche now might not have been cliche at the time. You know, sometimes a movie like set the gold standard for certain cliches. Yeah. Um, but in this case, I, I don't think that's the case um, with Angel Heart. Like, I think it um, like they weren't just leaning on cliche. Yeah, and again, that's the... Even though the story itself is, like, the basic Faustian story. Yeah. But, you know, dressed up with horror trappings to make it extra interesting. That's really the thing, too, is that, I mean, you can't try and come up with an original story. You can just come up with a an original way of telling it or a Mm -hmm. way to tell it with conviction, and I think that's what he's doing here. Which, again, is just really unfortunate in that it didn't, you know, get a bigger audience because it is something that is sincere and unique and just judging by that sex scene alone it is something that is that isn't sanitized and isn't mm-hmm. you know boulderized and and it has a, a strong artistic vision and i think that it is worth more people being aware of it yeah angel heart check it out yeah we got it off uh we got it off itunes yeah and i i got a dvd of it back when netflix still had dvds uh in the defense of um of Mickey Rourke, this is one of the things I wanted to mention earlier. It's like, yeah, again, like he seems kind of, you know, clownish. But I mean, um, like if you figure his role in the wrestler, Darren Aronofsky thought he was worth working with. Um, Lee Strasberg thought he was worth, you know, admitting into school. Michael Cimino thought he was worth working with. Nicholas Rogue, um, Francis Ford Coppola, yeah, Francis Ford Coppola, Terrence Malick, Steve Buscemi, Robert Rodriguez, obviously Alan Parker, like. He's he he's deserving of esteem as an actor. So So yeah, like. if you see Mickey Rourke, maybe give him uh, some little sweaters for his chihuahuas or something. 
Because he really loves those fucking dogs. <laughs> and he loves to smoke. God bless him. Yep. <laughs> <laughs>